Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. Welcome to the New Books Network. So welcome to New Books in Critical Theory, which is a podcast that's part of the New Books Network. On this episode, I'm talking to Professor Bethany Klein, who is a professor of media and communication at the University of Leeds, about her new book, Selling Out, Culture, Commerce and Popular Music. So welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Dave. Thanks for having me. Um, th- this, this is a great book. It's both academically really interesting uh, and tells us actually a great deal of, uh, about the music industry and you know, um, even you might think of like the political economy of music to use, you know, these kind of grand uh, sort of terms, whilst at the same time, it grapples with this kind of really, I guess, fundamental sort of like um, cultural phenomenon, insult, um, you know, moral dilemma almost. And, and doing the two things at once, I, I think is great. And the place to kick off with the book is is, is the title actually is, is this term selling out? Um, what 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 are we actually talking about when we're talking about selling out, and, and and why is it a kind of you know interesting topic to do a book about? Yeah, so I guess if I was going to give you the short, crisp definition, I would say that selling out is when somebody is perceived to have compromised their values or integrity for money or power, and obviously this happens in lots of parts of life and politics around identity um, and in popular music. And I think probably popular music is where most people will have encountered the concept of selling out um, at some point in their lives. And indeed, it's it's an idea that for me has been kind of percolating for a much longer time than I've been a scholar. If I think back to when I was in my early teens and discovering subcultures for the first time um, is really when I first encountered and kind of grappled with the idea of selling out i mean the the book maybe does three things with selling out you know there's a task of like historicizing um the idea there's the task of relating it to the music industry crucially like as an industry and then i guess there's there's the task of kind of mulling over not not whether it's a kind of a, a good or bad thing precisely but you know trying to think through um 
what this idea means in the context of history and, and industry. And, and we'll, we'll kind of move around those three three things that are going on. But I mm. guess, you know, if you've given us maybe like um, the concise theoretical definition of selling out, we might think about how it works in practice. And part of this is bound up with the way the music industry is, I guess, kind of like moved from producing entertainment to being thought of as, you know, kind of uh, legitimate or, you know, kind of like, you know, formally artistic. And the people to talk about on this are the Beatles, because in some ways it's sort of kind of like slightly weird to think of selling out and then to start with the Beatles. But, you know, you're really kind of keen in the book to say, look, you know, we need to understand how entertainment and art are kind of entangled if we're going to understand selling out. That's right. I mean, I think the the Beatles are a great example of understanding this transition from entertainment to art that popular music undertook in the 60s. Um, And this is important because if we start to boil down the concept of selling out, then it's clear that in the case of popular music, they're drawing from ideas in the art world. Um, And really, the concept of selling out wouldn't make any sense for popular music if you weren't thinking about popular music through an artistic lens, if it's just entertainment, then it doesn't matter what it does to make money. Once it um, announces itself as art, then suddenly you're holding it to a different standard. And so I think, you know, the case of the Beatles kind of perfectly encapsula- encapsulates that, right? Because they they were just teen idols at first. They were um, uh, entering the industry at a time when popular music was still very much associated with teen audiences. There was a lot of turnover. There was um, not necessarily a a sense that artists were in control of their own destiny. Um, uh, There were lots of other people pulling the strings and that was fine and normal. Um, And then something started to shift and change with the Beatles, right? So we can see this both in terms of the content of what they were doing and the context. So in terms of the content, we can think about how the Beatles' music became more experimental, the lyrics more akin to poetry, right? And, and of course, they were doing kind of ancillary artistic projects as well that, that also um, uh, played along to this tune, right? So John Lennon was writing poetry. Um, uh, Richard Lester's A Hard Day's Night was not just a kind of teeny bopper film, was it? It was considered a, a work of art in its own right. So you have that going on. And at the same time, um, you can see in the kind of control they had over their career and the increasing control they had, um, there was a kind of uh, shift towards viewing them as geniuses, as artists. So um, being able to choose the the track order, we take this for granted now, right? But this was at a time when this would have been uh, record companies deciding what's the track order going to be on an album. Being able to uh, uh, weigh in on and choose the cover art um, you know, this was quite a new thing. And, and the, the Beatles were really um, leading the charge uh, and not far behind were some of their North American counterparts, like the Birds, like the Beach Boys. But, you know, this was very new. And then I guess one other thing I'd say is, um, you know, a, a lot of what I do in the book is talk about the work that Selling Out is doing as a kind of discourse. Um, and of course, there's other discourses that run throughout. And one is that Um, In this period of time, they're talked about as artists. They're promoted as artists by their managers and other professionals involved in their career. So there was a real changing perception about what they were doing. 
And again, this shift is really important because without it, selling out isn't relevant to popular music. Once we establish popular music, or at least portions of popular music as art, then suddenly we can think about the values we expect from artists and what it would mean to sell out that vision. And it's something that is like, um, maybe the term I'd use is kind of distributed in the sense, and, and, and it's great, you, you know, you're kind of really up front very early on in the book about, you know, ideas of, you know, what is an artist who is, you know, kind of artistically legitimate are attached to, you know, particular bodies are attached to um, ideas of, you know, whiteness, maleness, etc. And actually, you know, selling out, as, as we're going to talk about a bit, a bit later, um, is different in different genres um, and impacts ind- individuals quite, quite differently. And, and I'm sort of interested to know that, you know, maybe hear a bit more about that, particularly through, you know, the idea of kind of authenticity and, and how that is attached to, um, you know, really specific people um, as a way of kind of understanding selling out. Yeah, I mean, this was quite a difficult part of writing the book for me was kind of acknowledging what I suspected, which is if you start tracing the use of selling out in popular music culture, you'll quickly learn that it's a concept that's almost entirely reserved for white middle-class male artists, right? And you start to unpack that and realize that actually um, the authenticity that is so closely protected by fans and artists um, is a privilege. And it's a privilege uh, that uh, is not distributed evenly, that uh, that tends to revolve around a certain um, white middle-class male rock concept and, and rock culture. And um, if you fall outside of that, um, you don't get to participate. Or you know, you're given a different type of authenticity, but not that same one that's kind of based in this Dylan, Beatles, you know, rock mode of um, pure artistic expression untainted by external commercial forces. Um, Some of the same qualities that are considered authentic for this group of musicians are considered natural to non-white musicians, to female musicians, right? So, I mean, what I had to do was kind of find a way of defending the concept of selling out and the values attached to it, even though I find it quite upsetting the way um, they've been wielded within popular music scenes historically. Um, So what I try to do in the book is say that the concept of selling out I'm not interested in whether somebody is sold out or not. This is not the part that appeals to me. But what I am interested in is how that concept seeks to protect values that matter to us as people who love music. Um, And so even though in practice, um, selling out and authenticity have often been quite exclusive terms, those values that people have sought to protect, I think, are meaningful well beyond those groups. And these are values like artistry, integrity, independence, community, um, thinking about who has power, right? So, um, so yes, it was, it's a tough one to balance in some ways because, um, you know, I certainly didn't want the book to be just about white middle-class male rock. And yet so much of the history of selling out 
is exactly in that zone. I mean, the, the way to kind of pick up on this and, and maybe continue that thread is to jump to, to, to much later in the book, um, where you try and think through selling out in the context of rap music. And one of the things the book is really strong on in that uh, kind of later part is by trying to set out, I guess, how, you know, kind of racism, racial inequality works in the music industry and how actually, you know, artists like Jay-Z, Dr. Dre um, are dealing with a very different, you know, almost kind of like playing field um, to the people you're uh, using as as examples early in the book. So I, I, I wonder if you could kind of set out actually that, you know, idea of selling out in rap and, and whether, you know, those values that, uh, you know, we, we cherish um, are s- sort of sustainable in the context of um, racial inequalities. Right. So I started with the assumption that you often hear um, that rap has a different relationship to commercialism, to consumerism, to branding. Um, an unproblematic one, you know, a relaxed relationship. And I really sought to kind of think that through um, also against the idea that actually, whilst that may be the case, and I'm not sure it is, um, selling out the phrase, the concept, has quite a significant presence in rap. It's just a, a slightly different version of it. And so I've tried to tie these different aspects together. So, um, what I look at in the book is um, why it is that rap artists uh, felt able to enter into relationships with consumer brands at quite quite an early stage in, in rap's ascendancy. Um, and a lot of this is because rap wasn't really being given a fair shot in the music industries, um, which can be quite conservative. Uh, didn't want to take a risk on what was maybe seen as a, a short-lived trend at the time, um, and so if you think, well, these were these were artists who just weren't being given the same opportunities by a, a music industry that that has a long history of um, racist exploitation. Anyway, you can see why consumer brands were, let's say, no worse an ally than record labels. Okay. So we can look at examples of that, like Run DMC and Adidas, um, or I talk about St. Ides as a slightly more problematic one. That's a malt liquor brand that um, decided to use gangster rappers to to target um, audiences living in areas of poverty. You can look at these early examples and say, okay, I can understand why I was going in that direction. Okay, fine. How do we relate that to authenticity and selling out then in this case? And how do we tie it back to the version of selling out that um, the book largely looks at, which is much more attached to a kind of rock sense of um, authenticity being pure artistic expression? Well, selling out in the rap community, as in the African-American community at large, is often about um, racial identity, racial authenticity. Um, So I uh, cite... Randall Kennedy's book quite a bit uh, in talking this through because I think he does a really fantastic job of talking about how selling out this idea of betraying your community um, uh, for yourself to, for whatever you know uh, benefits you might gain um, is one that perhaps gets used too quickly and too much at times. People get called out for being sellouts and yet also has this really important function in terms of 
um, policing members of a community, right? So he's talking about this in terms of um, the African-American community at large and particularly around um, politicians, for example. But you can see the same thing at work when you look at rap, where a sellout here is somebody who um, is seen to stray from the community that supported them early on. Well, actually, that very much ties to the way selling out gets used in some parts of um, rock communities, right? So it's not far away from how selling out gets used in the indie community, where there's a sense that um, uh, if artists try to reach a larger audience, they're neglecting that early core community that first supported them. So I've tried to make these links, but I think the main point I I wanted to make in the chapter is to say that um, the, the idea that rap has a easy relationship with commercialism is perhaps missing the history here, which is that it's not an easy relationship with commercialism so much as a difficult relationship with the music industries. And commercialism just filled a gap for them. Consumer brands filled a gap. Um, Where I find this kind of interesting in the modern day is that uh, rap in the States now is the most popular genre. Um, a, A lot of rap artists are the most successful artists. And so I do wonder um, the extent to which they're now providing a template for anybody who wants to be a very successful artist. And in that respect, it's quite interesting to see how ahead of the game a lot of rap artists were in terms of um, more complex relationships with consumer brands, um, including launching their own brands or uh, working as um, creative directors for brands, you know, moving beyond kind of basic product placement or um, sponsorship deals to to something much more entrepreneurial. Um, And so there's an interesting link there as well if you start to look at what's become the norm um, in popular music culture. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. I mean, that, you know, entire sort of, as you describe, you know, promotional culture in, in which we find ourselves is, is is really the kind of the back end, end of the book. And I, I think just kind of for a moment before we get into that, I want to pick up on, on you made a really fleeting reference to, to indies and, and the idea of selling out. And I guess, you know, what we'd call like indie music is, um, you know what one of the really um, kind of prime sites for um, discussions and, and ideas of selling out but but one of the things that um, you're quite keen to do in the book is basically say well you know actually there are some important differences in both you know nations so UK and US um, and in how we should think about you know sort of 
um, indie more generally, um, both in terms of the kind of the rise of independent, um, maybe we'd call them, you know, institutions as well as record labels, um, but also particular music scenes. And, and I guess, you, you know, the story of in, indie is, is crucial to uh, the story of selling out as well. Yeah, that's right. And so I, I think this was probably the first instance of selling out that I encountered in my personal life when um, when I was 14, 15 years old. And um, bands that, that I really liked uh, began to be courted by major labels and some of them signed to major labels. And this was the big sellout of that period, was the mid-90s. Um, so it was really interesting to kind of revisit that and maybe exercise some demons um, to sort of make sense of how I felt at the time um, versus how I intellectually think through these issues now. Um, as part of that, I had to deal with the differences between the US and the UK. I grew up in the US. I've lived in the UK since 2006. And so um, I was aware already that there were some differences in how we understood indie, but this allowed me a chance to really dig a bit deeper. I guess um, if I was going to uh, put this simply, I would say that um, indie in the UK, uh, in some ways, was given a more comfortable home in the mainstream music industries. Um, although you did have a kind of rise of the indie charts for a while, the truth is, like there was, there were always kind of mainstream outlets, um, and by mainstream I mean like BBC for smaller independent bands. Um, uh, I don't think there was ever as much of a gulf um, between sort of mainstream music and indie music. And if you look at the charts in, let's say, the the um, late 70s to the early 80s, you know, so where uh, you'd expect to see some punk and new wave, the charts to me are just so much more interesting in the UK than they were in the US, um, where um, where indie was really uh, much more remote from from the mainstream, I think you know I mentioned in the book that maybe some of this is geographical. Um, that uh, unless you were an indie label that had connections in or around, let's say L.A. or New York, you were unlikely to show up on a kind of mainstream radar in the U.S. Whereas in the U.K., everything was kind of based largely around. London and then maybe a bit in Manchester, but it was there wasn't there wasn't so much of a, a divide, I think. Um, and so maybe that explains why, although there was some um, upset when certain independent labels were bought up by majors or when indie bands signed to majors in the UK, it seems to me uh, quite minor compared to uh, the upset in the US around the the same issue. Um, I don't know whether that was your experience growing up here, um, but but that seems to me to explain why it was so easy for independence to transition to indie to become just like a name of a genre here rather than a, a description of a of a type of production. Um, in the U.S., it, uh, if we think about the the big sort of signing bonanza following the success of Nirvana, it felt much more aggressive. It felt much um, less careful um, an integration. So, uh, you know, every band that sounded anything like Nirvana or was in any sort of scene like that scene was approached by a major label. 
Um, and uh, um, those that signed often didn't get what they'd hoped from it. Um, and indeed, like there were some bands that definitely benefited from um, being on a bigger label, you know, like let's say they'd outgrown their indie label, but the expectations of major labels are so high, so over the top, most indie bands could never reach them, right? So sure, they could sell two, three times as many records on a major, but that's nowhere near enough for a major to want to keep you or protect you, um, you know, because they operate on this model where they're just looking for the enormous sort of blockbuster successes and everything else is basically a failure. Um, and so I, so it's not surprising, really, that there was a lot of bad blood there um, between kind of a, people coming from independent scenes and people in working for or ultimately signed to um, the, the major record labels. Um, yeah. So, so, yeah, I mean, independence is a really interesting example of, of thinking about selling out. Um, and, I, and yeah, I think I, what I tried to do was see it as um, more nuanced than the way I had experienced it when I was a youth. Um, but it still made me step away thinking, gosh, independence is so important. And we've now reached a point where um, it's become virtually impossible to have the kind of independence that we were talking about in the 80s and 90s. Um, you know, even very small independent labels now often rely on major distributors and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, it, it made, in a way, it made me just feel more resolute that um, that independence was such an important quality for popular music. Um, and and probably we need to fight to retain it where possible. I mean, it's funny. I'm just thinking my uh, teenage heavily committed metal fan self would have thought almost everyone you're talking about was a total sellout. <laughs> so, yeah. It's funny because like, you know, the, the sort of, um, the, the stuff we've already talked about with rap, which is so crucial, you know, the dynamics of in genre, but behavior and norms are so crucial because obviously like metal is such, you know, uh, dominated by major labels you know the big metal artists um all signed you know these kind of like heavy huge deals and, and stuff like this and mm -hmm. yet you know the kind of fan culture is like you know alternative different we're not the mainstream it's, it's really yeah funny in a way but that's right i'm selling out um hinges on on some different principles there i guess no, I mean, one of the things that i was thinking about a lot was um in in my youth when this was an issue that i encountered uh it was often characterized as um, just very personal that people just feel betrayed by the bands they liked and they don't want them to get any bigger and how unfair that is to artists. And I can see that perspective, but I suppose what I ended up thinking working through this idea in the book is actually that, that thing that sounds very personal is not just a personal thing. It's about community and community is hugely important part of popular music culture. Um, it's not just about an individual and how they feel. It's about the ability of popular music to bring us together in a community. And it is true that, um, you know, at a, a much larger scale, that becomes much less likely or not possible in the same ways. I mean, it, it really sort of um, strikes me how the dynamics of both 
um, I guess, your critical analysis of um, from entertainment to art and of things like um, people's, I suppose, personal sort of reactions to the loss of, of a, you know, a, a, an indie band and, you know, things like um, race within the music industry. These are all stories about how, you know, not just um, individualized, but how the music industry functioned in the past. And we have this question of, you know, well, how should we think about selling out now when, you know, the music industry th- think you know, it, it functions very, very differently. And I guess we, we, we might take a couple of the concluding chapters together in, in this question, um, both in terms of, you know, the way advertising is, is now important, the way that we've got, you know, direct kind of music and musician brand partnerships that are not you know kind of like hidden and formalized in terms of like selling things but also in terms of like you know creative um, activity as well and I guess you frame this through this idea of promotional culture so what is promotional culture like what what are you sort of talking about there and and how does this um, help us to understand uh, music now right so this is an idea that Andrew Wernick conceptualized in the early 90s to capture this notion that um, promotion is no longer um, a a separate part of life, but has pervaded every aspect of life to the extent that um, it becomes impossible to separate the promotion from the object being promoted, right? And I think um, it's an idea that just becomes more and more salient with each passing year and decade. Um, There are so few spaces now that um, are not invaded by some sort of commercial culture. Um, I mean, the examples that I used to think about, I'm not even sure if those are free from commercial culture now. So something like churches, I I have no doubt that there are churches with advertising in them now. Um, And of course, we all know that sports stadiums are are covered in advertising. uh, and now, uh, with the rise of social media, uh, as individuals, we've become much more wrapped up with branding, both of ourselves and of um, brands that we might relate to ourselves. Um, you know, this idea that that uh, we are just really in this kind of um, web of promotion that it's very difficult to find any space outside of it. And I guess, um, again, I would say I'm not interested in um telling artists that the choices they're making are wrong or are a sellout but i'm interested in looking at the circumstances that lead them to make the choices that they're making um and i think it's fair to say that it is much harder now for an artist really at every level um to uh have a successful career without being involved in activities that would have once been considered by some people to be selling out. Can you give a couple of examples? Because obviously, uh, you know, that, you know, is it a dilemma even? But, but you know, that um, maybe situation with it within the music industry, um, it, it does, you know, kind of make us think of um, maybe what are some, um, good good examples um, of how artists are adapting to this new world. I'll give some examples and then maybe we can think through why this matters. 
what do these examples suggest to us? So, you know, these can be relationships with consumer brands that range from quite sort of minor relationships to, to those that are very deeply entrenched, um, ongoing partnerships, right? So, um, you know, one of the chapters is about the use of music and advertising, which was a key battleground for selling out debates in the late 90s, early 2000s, but just over time became such an ordinary space to hear popular music um, that I don't even think it, it registers anymore for, um, for many people. Um, so it can be as simple as that. Um, it could be um, something slightly more involved, so a kind of sponsorship. Um, so I talk a bit about the case of OK Go, uh, who've had their incredibly clever, really fun to watch music videos sponsored by different companies from Google to Chevrolet. Um, I think that's kind of an extreme case, right? Because most artists wouldn't be able to rely on that regular income stream. But um, it's also an example that I could imagine other artists could aspire to um, because, you know, you're still able to do something creative um, and get your music out there uh, with this kind of, you know, what OK Go describes as a patronage from a consumer brand. Um, all the way to more involved partnerships, like so artists who've been um, uh, in named roles for companies as Lady Gaga was for Polaroid, or I think Justin Timberlake was for uh, Bud Light, um, uh, where you're not just uh, having your tour sponsored, but you're also possibly speaking on behalf of the product and the company. You may be uh, advising the company in, in some respects. Um, so quite involved at that level. Um, and then we could also think here about examples of consumer brands that have dipped their toe in the water of the music business. So consumer brands that have um, started record labels like Mountain Dew had one for a while. Um, Converse released a, a series of recordings um, to uh, brands that have done more short-term uh, 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 programs around music. So I think in 2019, Levi's had this kind of music mentorship program with artists in Liverpool. Um, and uh, so those musicians got something out of this. And then what does Levi's get out of it? Well, they get to show these ads uh, of them supporting local music, uh, demonstrating that deeper commitment to and relationship with popular music culture. So I think all of these uh, are interesting and, and good examples of the sorts of relationships that we see now. Okay, so so what? Um, why should we care? Why does it matter? Maybe it's the case that uh, these partnerships themselves will shape the output um, of musicians. I think it'd be very difficult to find solid evidence of that. Um, I don't think many people would be willing to say that they changed their sound or their lyrics because of a relationship that they had to a consumer brand. Maybe that's not happening at all. But even if that's not happening, I guess I would say that um, to give consumer brands so much power as a gatekeeper for popular music culture means the main thing we should worry about is the fact that there will not be um, opportunity or space for all sounds or messages. Um, although uh, there might be cachet in um, using music that's unknown or unusual, there are limits to this. 
ultimately uh, brands want to associate with musicians that are going to be risk-free, uncontroversial, and might um, increase their sales. And so you can imagine that that doesn't work for all music and it shouldn't work for all music. Um, And so I guess one of the things I worry about is um, where other opportunities may be removed because we've come to a point where we expect artists to rely on consumer brand partnerships um, rather than opportunities that they might have relied on in the past. And I guess this is the moment where um, we might mourn the loss of, of a kind of, you know, strict idea of selling out for all of its like, you know, and the book is really good on this, for all of its baggage um, and for all of it um, being, you know, what what the kids would call a kind of problematic um, idea. Actually, you, you know, there might be something we're really losing because we don't have this strong idea of selling out anymore. So let me circle back to something I said earlier, which is that what I was interested in doing in the book wasn't saying who was selling out and who wasn't, but was looking at selling out as a discourse that was doing something. It's doing some work. It's doing something important. So I think we can think about the loss of that concept and that discourse um, in that sense as um, taking away a a voice that ordinary people had to weigh in on issues of commercialism, right? So um, I said earlier that I think most people will have encountered the concept of selling out around popular music culture. Now, they may have also noticed it used in a political context or um, maybe around an identity issue, but um, probably it's mostly around popular music. Okay, so if we no longer use that phrase, this this one kind of interesting outpost of thinking about commercialism, and that's the the space where most people had the chance to think about the relationship between culture and commerce and the role of commerce, then um, then what about now? Where where do we have a, an alternative space to discuss these issues? Um, people who wouldn't feel comfortable talking about the commercialization of say healthcare or education. Um, I think it is a real loss to lose one of the rare spaces that everyday ordinary people felt like they could weigh in on issues of commercialization. I mean, the book, in some ways, as with all good academic books, you know, there's a load of different research agendas that I uh, I could think of would would come from it. Um, but also, it, it does have a sense of you know, you might have kind of settled your accounts a little bit with selling out, particularly, you know, what, what you just said said then is a perfect example of, you know, we could think about selling out in a whole variety of different uh, settings across uh, the social world. And, you know, we could, you know, kind of form research agendas on that. But in terms of the kind of your aim of that, what does the discourse of selling out do? You know, this this book is is really good on on almost kind of settling that. So, to wrap up, I guess you know the, the thing that that I'm I'm prompted to think through now is what do you do next? You know, uh, is there a you know a major new kind of research subject that you're interested in? Is is there another book you you've been thinking about? Could you go into like a major partnership with an arms company and sell out yourself? You know, <laughs> this kind of thing. What what's next in terms of your your academic work? Right. So first, I think um, maybe we could address what's next for selling out, which might not be me, but I hope that 
what the book does is say we should listen to those individuals and organizations that are advocating for artists um, to ensure that um, there will always be a space for a wide variety of sounds and messages. And that is very different than what I am doing next, which is I often um, flit around to, to different media interests. Um, uh, and so actually what I'm doing is going back to um, thinking about television and um, and television's potential to offer um, potentially a, a form of, of civic participation, let's say. Um, Stephen Coleman, another professor in my department, and I have for many, many years um, discussed the possibility of exploring um, what it means for people to go on reality television by talking to them about what their expectations are and what their experiences are, um, thinking about it in terms of um, uh, why it is that at a time when faith and civic participation um, and big P politics is low, um, so many people feel willing to go on television or other forms of media and um, disclose their values and beliefs and what we might learn from that about um, participation and representation. I mean, ultimately, Stephen and I are both enormous Big Brother and Love Island fans. And so um, it was inevitable that we had to find a way to um, eventually uh, justify and intellectualize our um, television fanship. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of my, my next uh, big project, hopefully. Um, and uh, um, although everything is kind of on hold right now, isn't it? Um, television's a bit on hold right now and, and reality television's a bit on hold right now. So we'll have to see what form that takes. Um, and I thought, oh gosh, that's completely unrelated to selling out. Um, but it's not entirely because I think um, one of the things that, that's at the core of all of my work, even though I do sometimes flit around to different types of media, is I'm interested in um, culture uh, that has aims beyond purely commercial goals, even as it's constrained by commercial goals. And I think in that sense, reality television is quite an interesting one because it can be dismissed as, you know, purely about getting big audiences and, and, um, uh, and attracting um, sponsorship and money. But actually, um, if you watch reality television, it's about so much more than that. You know, it's people who don't normally get a chance to um, express themselves to a, a large number of people at once um, who are able to suddenly to, to um, disclose their values, their beliefs, their opinions to, to the world. And there's something so important about that. Um, and uh, and uh, yeah, and, I, and so I, I think uh, maybe it's not so different an object of study after all. I'm, I'm still kind of pushing for finding the meaning in culture despite the forces of commercialism swirling around them. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.